But by spring, the lighter tips of their feathers have been worn away, leaving them with a black, glossy plumage, glistening with iridescences. Inevitably, students at the museum will describe an elegant black bird with flashes of green, pink, and purple. About this big, they say, holding their hands about seven inches apart vertically, with a bright yellow bill. What is it? A starling, I answer. What follows is a dejected look flushed with embarrassment. Is that all? The name precedes the bird. I understand it. When I'm out at the dump with starlings, I don't want to like them. They are common, they are aggressive, and they behave poorly, crowding out other birds. When a harrier happens to cross over from the marsh, they swarm him, he disappears. They want their trash to themselves. Perhaps we project onto starlings that which we deplore in ourselves, our numbers, our aggression, our greed, and our cruelty. Like starlings, we are taking over the world. The parallels continue. Starlings forage by day in open country, competing with native species such as bluebirds for food. They drive them out. In late afternoon, they return in small groups to nest elsewhere, competing with cavity nesters, such as flickers, martins, tree swallows, and chickadees. Once again, they move in on other birds' territories. Starlings are sophisticated mimics, singing songs of bobwhites, kildare, flickers, and phoebes. Their flocks drape bare branches in spring with choruses of chatters, creaks, and coos. Like any good imposter, they confuse the boundaries. They lie. What is the impact of such a species on the land? Quite simply, a loss of diversity. What makes our relationship to starlings even more curious is that we loathe them calling in exterminators because we fear disease, yet we do everything within our power to encourage them as we systematically erase the specialized habitats of specialized birds. I have yet to see a snowy egret spearing a bagel. The man who wanted Shakespeare's birds flying in Central Park and altruistically brought starlings to America from England is not to blame. We are for creating more and more habitat for a bird we despise. Perhaps the only value in the multitudes of starlings we have garnished is that in some small way they allow us to comprehend what vast flocks of birds must have felt like. The symmetry of starling flocks takes my breath away. I lose track of time and space. At the dump, all it takes is the sweep of my hand. They rise, hundreds of starlings. They wheel and turn, twist and glide with no apparent leader. They are the collective, a flight of frenzy. They are black stars against a blue sky. I watch them above the dump, expanding and contracting along the meridian of a winged universe. Suddenly, the flock pulls together like a winced eye, then opens in an explosion of feathers. A peregrine falcon is expelled, but not without its prey. With folded wings, he strikes a starling and plucks its body from midair. The flock blinks again, and the starlings disperse, one by one, returning to the landfill. The starlings at the Salt Lake City Municipal Dump give us numbers that look good on our Christmas bird count. Thousands. But they become faceless when compared to one peregrine falcon. A century ago, he would have seized a teal. I will continue to count birds at the dump, hoping for under-the-table favors. But don't mistake my motives. I am not contemplating starlings. 
It is the falcon I wait for, the duck hawk with a memory for birds that once blotted out the sun. My name is Larry Cox, and I'm the director of the Rainforest Foundation. The Rainforest Foundation began in 1989, um, so it's a very, very young organization. Uh, and we're extremely proud that uh, in a little more than three